Hey, welcome back. This is the 100th episode of the Optimism Vaccine Podcast. And uh, honestly, I didn't think we'd make it this far, but here we are. And we've got something special lined up for you guys today. Uh, Arguably our most exciting episode yet, I would say. And maybe that's just a ploy to get you guys to listen, but who knows? Uh, Joining me today, he says he's social distancing, but I think he's just a real Billy No Mates. Jack Eason's here. Wow, that's that that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to throw in some more of the European slang. Uh, there's oh. there's an there's an over the air channel that we get, and it's like it's ABC during the day, but then around eight o'clock until like four in the morning, it turns into a station called Justice, and they just play <laughs> like super like low rent versions of true crime stories but they're just that, really poorly produced. And that's where and you got Billy No Mates. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, so one of, one of the ones that they, they harvest their content from, it's, it's called like the most deadliest murder men or something like that. And it was about this like child molester in, uh, I don't know, some weird Southern England town, new Oh, they're all folk. weird. They all yeah. have secrets. They're scenic, but have secrets. That's something exactly. I've learned from those things. Yeah, it didn't even occur to me that Billy No Mates was like a specifically European thing. But yeah. Anyway, yeah, no, um, it's all good. I'm social distancing uh, mostly because just America is just demonstrating the worst case scenario for a pandemic. So I'm mm-hmm. just going to stay indoors for a while. That's my plan. We should all aspire to be Billy No Mates right now, I think. Yes. Staying indoors, watching great movies, Steve. Exactly. That's what we do. That's what we do. Also joining me, we got Jake here. Jake, how you doing? Hey, doing great, Steve. How are you? I am fan-fucking-tastic, man. Excellent. I, I'm excited. I'm very excited about this episode. Happy to be here. Yeah, happy 100th. This is a, a cause for celebration. Yes, I'm, I'm chugging a bottle of champagne. That's my goal. Just going to mm. keep popping bottles the whole episode. That's right. Uh... Sean Glynis is joining us as well. Sean, how you doing? Uh, good. I, I'd be doing better if you would uh, watch your language a little bit as we, you know, crossed over a uh, hundred. I was just hoping that we would kind of turn a new leaf on some things. Yeah, we're we're gonna have to really clean up the language. I think that's our that's our biggest barrier as people don't like us using the fuck word so much. But I don't know. Maybe I'll get over it. We'll see. Uh, Adam Myros, how the fuck are you? Oh, I'm doing all right. I kind of want to double back to this whole TV station called Justice. Justice? You, you have you ever watched Justice before? Are you familiar with the Justice? It it, it sounds like uh, something Matthew McConaughey's running in that Serenity movie. Is is that <laughs> also a, a kids' clothing store in the mall? Justice? That's like just Justice. Yeah, I we're see not the... all mall rats like you, Jack. <laughs> Jack. Well, I I don't I only pay attention because it's a weird name for a kid's clothing store. <laughs> Kids are bad at justice. They're all sociopaths, <laughs> and if they try to bring you to justice, you can just push them over. It's really yeah, that's easy. True. So well, yeah, you, you know, Jack, we gotta we gotta instill those fascist values in them early. You know, get it's behind true. the law I mean, and order, kiddies. I mean, Bugsy Malone was all kids, but like Judge Dredd wouldn't work with all kids. It would just be goofy. You know. Well, I guess it yeah. would work if they were all kids, but if just the judges were kids, you know, that wouldn't work. That would be a strange movie. People would have problems with it. I'm the Judge Joey and Executioner. <laughs> I think that's great. 
<laughs> Actually, yeah, I kind of want to see this movie now. Shit. Just, okay. Well, maybe we have the man to do it. Who knows? You, you never know. I mean, if, if you got a movie that needs to get made, might I recommend you reach out to the topic of episode 100, Mr. Stephen Grew. Now, for the uninitiated, those of you who have not been baptized in the waters of Gru, you're probably asking yourself, who is this man? How is he getting his own episode, episode 100, no less, of the Opvac cast? And I'm glad you're asking that because this is, for my money, the most prolific independent filmmaker in America, probably in the world. He has, by his own count, made, I think, over 260 films at this point. Um... He has been working nonstop for 22 years. And even though he is an independent filmmaker who has, to my knowledge, never sold a film to a distributor, uh, he, believe, this is, this is his only job. The most prolific filmmaker you've never heard of. That's probably true. That, and, and honestly, but we're here to change that. We're here to change that today. Now, Myros and I are familiar with Stephen Grew because we stumbled onto his work for... Another podcast that we do for the Optimism Vaccine Network, and that is Caustic Contents. You can go back in the archives and look at our episode where we discuss his movie, The Artifact. And we we came across this. Let's not forget Challenge of Faith, by the way. Never forget Challenge of Faith. We also also (laughs) went through Challenge of Faith. And we got in contact with Stephen after we did The Artifact episode. We had done Challenge of Faith, Faith previously. And we got in contact with him because... Um, he had heard the episode and was like, hey, I want to talk to you, which is a weird thing, like just a random Facebook message from a, a filmmaker that we just done a podcast on. Did not expect that. Uh, haven't, haven't gotten that from any of the directors of the Whoopi Goldberg movies we covered or, you know, I, Abel Ferreira has not reached out to me yet. Uh, I know, you know, phone line's open, buddy. I'm here for you if you want to talk. But anyways, uh, Stephen Grew reached out to me and he said, hey, I want to call you. And I said, uh, okay. So he called me and I talked to him for like an hour about a year ago. And we, uh, we discussed some of his movies and, and his philosophy of filmmaking. And it was, it was a very uh, enlightening conversation. And here we are a little over a year later. And now we are exposing more Gru to the masses. And we are going to be talking about what I think he would argue is probably his uh, greatest cinematic achievement and probably his best-known movie for a filmmaker who's not that well-known. But, yeah, we, uh, we watched The Unexpected Race, which is, uh, for, for my money, unlike anything you are likely to see this side of Anil Breen, let me tell you. Uh, it, is, it has a strange ethereal quality to it that just makes it transcend so many other similar films and similar filmmakers that populate streaming sites like, you know, Tubi and uh, Amazon Prime and things like that. So I guess my initial question for you guys, and feel free to jump in whenever you want, what was your initial Gru experience like? What was it like to experience a Stephen Gru movie for the first time? Oh, well, I'll go. Um, this has uh, a lot of the hallmarks of um, these, uh, these self-made auteur films like uh, Breen or uh, a YSO, have you? wherein the, uh, the director, writer, editor is also the star, and he gives himself this mythical, almost Christ-like role 
uh, as a near immortal elf who falls in love with a young girl with an English accent, because um, that's how you do. And um, yeah, you said ethereal. It's it's really got this unusual uh, dreamlike quality to it that you cannot replicate it if you did it intentionally. And we'll get to that with the remake because that's the thing about cult films is that they're not uh you can't make one on purpose you know you kind of have to have this director's vision go basically tell unabated. that to the guy who made mandy uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what that means um and we, we uh, will if he reaches out to steve <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah if he wants to yell at me on facebook i'm available yeah that's fair but um yeah so it, this is yeah this is just such a such a bizarre uh mix of so many things yet i walked away not hating it i had a, actually a pretty good time and it also helps that it's only 72 minutes long with credits mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know that's this is the unexpected the, race 2003 unex- yeah the first one yeah. that was this was my first experience with steven grew so um, jack specifically for you what i want to know is when you were about to dive into this, did did you, or I guess, Sean, you could answer this as well. Did you think it was about like a foot race or a car race or something like that? And How unexpected was the actual meaning of the title? I haven't, pretty unexpected. I haven't seen it, but I'm guessing because I watched the documentary uh, that um, it was uh, about the elfish race or something to do with the uh white and elvish race i don't know i believe it's elven sean i I don't think we want (laughs) to be up on our nomenclature here when we're discussing another another race a race that has been famously uh famously mistreated in the united states by the fbi um (laughs) which is i mean yeah i had no idea what kind of a race i was getting like an unexpected race that's a great way of like it's someone this is like someone who i I remember a news story like a year or two ago about a young boy who uh won like a 5k by accident or like even a half marathon because he just kept going and he won because he was just really good at running maybe this is you know an unexpected race um, the title cards, both films, the, the original remake, pretty much opened with the same title cards, which explain very quickly that uh, elves were thought to be mythical creatures, but they weren't. They were real. They live in the U.S., in Utah, strangely enough. Uh, but the FBI had the bandwidth in the 1960s to run not one but two race wars. So the, the FBI were busy uh, tamping down the Black Panthers and assassinating people. Uh, killing Fred Hampton, so on and so forth. But they also had time to exterminate the elven race for reasons that, frankly, are never made clear in this film. Uh, but one of them survived, and he's the, the of course, the, the hero of this film. Um, Jake mentioned the, the girl in this movie has an English accent. Um, she's not English. I don't know why that happened. Um, oh, I could explain that. I yeah. could explain Unex- that. There's so much <laughs> unexpected. I would love to hear. Yeah, there's a lot of. I have a lot of questions. So absolutely, what we can explain, fantastic. You have Obvious. to know English. You have to have an English accent. The, the no, English, you do. <laughs> the English accent, it for the elves, it comes from a place of, and and Gru talks about this in the documentary briefly. But it's also a widely held belief in just like Renaissance fair fantasy cosplay that for whatever reason, elves have English accents. It's a thing. So that's that. Now, the girl, 
the main girl in the original version of Unexpected Race because there is the 2002, 2003 version, and then there's the uh, the 2018 version when he remade it. Now, the girl in the remake does not have the English accent. The one in the original does because... because she went to she, London. Yeah, she goes away to school, and she goes, yeah. she goes to school in London. I'm not sold on that explanation. <laughs> okay, so hold on, hold on. Now, what do we need to get into? I mean, that's a choice. We, we do. This is episode one. Is it? it's, it's odd that the elves have English accents specifically, but then also the lead actress just randomly has one because she went to school in London. It just seems like he's pushing everyone towards an English accent as an artistic choice, and I'm confused a little bit. Like, not even a cockney or anything, just like this strange, yeah, Renfest English. It's I like, think it's it called works. highbrow. It's classy. It's classy. My, my questioning was, because if you, you have, they have to have that throwaway line about how she's been at school in London, and I, my thinking was, oh, this actress does have an English accent, and he wrote that in to justify it, but why would you go out of your way to have her speak with an English accent and then say she's been in school this whole time because it does, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's true. It's like the Van Damme red, like, you know, the Van Damme explanation for an accent, but I, she's not English. I don't, I don't, I think, I'm pretty sure earlier on in the film, like it, it's not a real English accent. Let's be clear. No. So this you is, just this is don't a understand choice. highbrow cinema. It's gotta have accents. I mean, well, we knew that. Um, yeah, I was going to say, because Jake said that, you know, cult film, you can't make it on purpose. And then Steve mentioned the Renfest thing. And this is absolutely, if I were to describe this film, this is like Terrence Malick chugged a bottle of cough syrup and then just went to a Renfest. And <laughs> that's kind of like the spirit of the film. It's just sort of uh, everything, all the discussion scenes are very direct and terse. And they kind of, they do exactly what they're meant to say in terms of delivering story detail and everything. Uh, while also, as you may have guessed, leaving out a lot of things that might have maybe you might have questions, you you won't get answers to them. Um, but then uh, most once she meets the elf who's just hanging around in the forest, uh, which is a, a point I have serious problems with. But I'll get to that in just a little bit. Once you meet the elf and he just talks about stuff, it just does these cutaways of just like, oh, I remember whenever when I knew was alive, he's the last elf, and says, I remember we used to ride horses, and there's just like a, what feels like a five minute sequence of horse riding um, dialogueless, and then, you know like I, I, we hung out, we had festivals and it's just, they, they tussle, they wrestle they throw a knife at a tree for seemingly like five more minutes um, time loses meaning to some degree uh, while it's going and it does, it does ask a question for me, which is, okay, we don't know why the FBI are hunting the elves we also don't know, like, the elves live for, in the original, he changes this in the remake. In the remake, elves are less, uh, they have less longevity. I noticed that detail was changed. But in the original, they live to be up to 7,000 years old. And Lytherian, who is played by Steve Grew himself in the original film, he is 3,000 years old uh, in, in the original film. Uh, the elves don't do anything. Like they, they've been, he's been alive for three thousand years, and at one point he just wakes up in the morning and he's just sleeping in dirt. Like elves don't build houses. They don't build beds. There's no. No, like the it's culture like a of the commune, elves, man. Yeah, yeah. Like no shelter. They just dance in the forest. I'm just wondering. Uh, also, another thing that's never really clarified: elves have pointy ears and English accents. Beyond that, I don't understand what elves do. Like, what differentiates elves from people in the film? That's never discussed. Uh, I, they got some magic. They, they got healing they're power. They're stealthy. 
Do they have they have he oh they do have healing powers I suppose okay that's so there's like a bit of magic they don't use magic a lot they have pointy ears which they hide under frankly some the wig situation I know we're working <laughs> with what we got but the wigs are a little bit I mean the elves just all look like they've had a rough night the night before which they probably did because they don't have beds but um. Yeah, it's just it's a strange scenario here where I feel like he's made this film twice. He's made two uh, kind of proof of product uh, teasers for sequels to this film. <laughs> and yet there is at no point any indication of what, you know, being an elf is about other than just not being human. There's, you know, there's have, so uh, little. They also seem to have leveled up their stealth uh, slightly, you know. Yes, they're, they're very stealthy. Stealth like I've never seen before, says the FBI man who has not aged a day in 40 years himself, which makes me wonder if maybe he's a dark elf or something. I don't know. Ah. Well, he's not Derek, so you don't. <laughs> before we get into these uh, minute details and sort of jumps in logic, I feel like it would be proper to talk about who Stephen Grew is. I mean, obviously, Steve introduced him. But sort of like the aesthetic and the um, uh, technique and the the uh, <laughs> mo that that he is, and sort of maybe like you know talk about the yeah. larger abstract talk about the yeah. abstract uh, guru um, as auteur uh, before we sort of like get into the to the story details. Sure, sure. So when when we're talking about these Stephen Grew movies, um, he is he's got a very unique approach to filmmaking and you get a taste of this when you watch his films but it really kind of it all starts to make sense when you when you see him actually working and you see the behind the scenes stuff in the documentary um but basically Stephen grew like we said he writes he produces he stars he directs he does he does everything and when he is shooting when he is directing a movie um he moves at a breakneck pace, the likes of which I have never seen before. And it's a very interesting approach to filmmaking because he'll shoot like 150 shots in a day. And I think of the documentary, they even have a little chart that's like, oh, and you know, Kubrick would only shoot five shots in a day or something like that. Um, but these are these are long shoots, you know, these could be 12 hour days, 14 hour days, 19 hour days. And days on end, so four or five day shoots, all of this, all this, these shots are, are pushed in these days. He's moving like one to the next, one to the next. Okay, we got it. Go, 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 go. Just no breaks, just constantly moving. Okay. But it seems like, based on the documentary, and then looking at the films that have been produced, he doesn't, he doesn't ever seem to shoot for coverage. He shoots exactly what's on the script. He gets the exact shot that he needs, and then he moves to the next one. And it's wild because something like Unexpected Race, especially the, the, the original, it's a very short movie. So it makes you wonder. And even, even the remake, it's not like it's a two-hour-long film. So it's just crazy to think, like, what, what, is, what necessitates his process? I do wonder if there's a Unexpected Race redux you know, where he filters through 90 hours of footage to, to create the, he adds back in the plantation scene, all that, all that good <laughs> stuff. It's, it's, yeah, it doesn't make sense. I mean, he says he shoots a hundred plus shots in a day. I'm not sure there's a hundred shots in the first film. 
No. Frankly. No. Well, he, and if you look to, at yeah, something he, like like the artifact that we covered on our sister podcast here, there's the, the film literally he re-edited it after our podcast because uh, we had uh, made fun of it and he was unhappy with the results. But the the film probably has five shots in it. It's just like literally oh, wow. a camera sitting on a tripod. So and they just Tarkovsky go on and effort. on and on for 15, 20 minutes. So the, the question yeah, it's here just like is... like a series of long takes. That's yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's probably no. worth clarifying at this point. Steve said he is among the most prolific directors ever. It is worth noting that by Steve Grew's definition, anything he uploads to YouTube <laughs> is a film. film. Right, yeah. Um, which essentially... means by, by the same logic, like TikTok people are extremely prolific filmmakers. Right, yeah, it's like PewDiePie is actually the most prolific filmmaker in American history or something. It's like, I don't I think, think so, friend. I think Gru would do great on TikTok. I don't know why he hasn't embraced the platform yet. That seems like where a lot of his YouTube stuff, it would make more sense if he would just put it down to TikTok. It's silly costumes and and him goofing around as, you know, the Joker or, or Deadpool. Like, that That seems like TikTok is, that's the next evolution of Gru in my mind. The, um, the, the way that he shoots, the way that he works and uh, sort of um, like there's there's a shot in the documentary of him shooting like uh, somebody in like his living room or something against like a blue sheet on the wall. And he just needs like it's like Darth Vader or something um, like walking across the frame. Uh, the way that he sort of like <clears throat> shoots so quickly and, and um, uh, just, you know, sort of off the cuff type of you know, has an idea and gets it or, uh, coverage without, he's, he's not a perfectionist, I guess is the, is a kind way to say that. Um, yeah. uh, there, what the, the, the product that he ends up with, um, I found, I found myself thinking about, there's a certain respectability about not having a regard for decency and sort of like quote unquote competency. Like that's sort of like that, um, you know, that YouTube, uh, commenter or like, uh, film school brats, like sort of, um, you know, this, it's not competent, whatever. Like there's a certain quality that, uh, filmmakers who don't care about this sort of like decency, uh, that gets created and it does something new. I mean, you know, we've talked about Joe D'Amato and, and, um, and we've, we've watched Jess Franco movies that, that do that, you know, they, they don't really, always um have this sort of narrative uh beat by beat sort of you know there's a backbone that people follow a recipe and and it seems like Gru doesn't really care to do that to a certain extent um or he has his own internal logic i guess um and and there's something to respect about that as an artist whether whether you know you like the the, the product or sure. not but um yeah but I, 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 I guess what I came away with is um, the stuff that I, that I didn't respect as much as more about the way that these films are made with disregard for uh, labor. Um, and I think the documentary, which we don't really need to talk about, but the, the documentary maybe like questions um, whether this is neglectful uh, in his personal life. Sure. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I think there's, I mean, I certainly grew reminds me a lot of someone like say Jess Franco, not so much in the final films because right. I think Jess Franco is a, Jess Franco is an unusually gifted as, as mm-hmm. these, um, mm-hmm. despite 
kind of bouncing between everything. But but the, what what kind of interests me about Jess Franco is he he seemed to be a man and Joe D'Amato as well as men who were compelled to film. They were compelled to document. Like it seemed like they weren't really existing if they weren't producing something on film. And that meant something different, I guess, back in the in the sixties and seventies, where you know you had actual chemical photochemical processes that you had to abide by. But um, yeah, it's sort of an unusual thing of like a literally a life as one, you know, and the films bleed into each other, particularly for Jess Franco, that kind of like films were made on top of films. They extended, they were reflections of each other, or kind of strange echoes would appear through because he just never stopped. His films almost were like just strange compartmentalizing of like almost just different chapters of his life. Uh, Gru is similar in that he just, he seems absolutely compelled to produce content but he's doing it in the digital age um, and he's doing it in kind of frankly in time when, when film is cheap and cheapened to some degree by the fact that anyone with a, a cell phone or a cheap camera can produce technically a film. Um, and he's clearly going after the algorithm on YouTube. I mean, he's, his various products are Marvel, DC related um the joker show as has been mentioned he's like he's chasing <laughs> keywords quite quite clearly which is you know kind of debases it a little bit it's sort of like if you were if you're going for this then you know i can't imagine he's making money off hits for this any significant funding uh you know like maybe you know keep to your own like i, I agree with jake i actually think the the original unexpected race 2003 is a it's a film it's an achievement it's something and um, yeah you know and that's 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 worth something but i do think that you know sean you're talking about like the labor element i do think grew misunderstands perhaps the kind of he, he feels like he's sort of like the the unfortunate byproduct of auteurism being kind yeah. of the de facto uh prism through which we look at cinema which is that if there's anyone responsible for the meaning and worth of a film, it is there's one person, and it's the director, and the director produces that continually, and we follow the director's work. Um, if you flip that on its head, you know, a director produces many films, and those films are interesting because they are they are insights into the director, the director following up on his own themes or interests. Uh, if you flip that on its head, someone who has a lot of films become someone important because they have a lot of films they've made a lot of films it's it's kind of like the, it's almost like the cart before the horse there's like Gru's artistic intent is unclear and questionable but he has produced a voluminous category of films so maybe he's an artist then it's it's but it's very tricky to try and tamp it down because looking like I said earlier when I was talking about you know unexpected race and elves why elves i don't have an answer for that beyond that the lord of the rings was very popular yeah. um and i think he was interested in that and just kind of he, he wants to make popular cinema he wants to entertain but he's really riding the coattails of other trends quite shamelessly um but he's not he doesn't have the budget and i frankly like he does he, you know he doesn't have the the creative perspective to really change it up. Like, you know, when the Italians were ripping off Hollywood in the 70s, they were doing amazing stuff because they didn't have a budget and they didn't, you know, and they were and they were just trying to get more salacious. And they started coming up with insane solutions to problems. But Gru just seems to really 
stay in his lane. He kind of like his solutions are are like kind of practical problems of just I don't have enough money for you know I'm not ca I don't care about details. I just want action sequences. I want X Y Z. Um, his what, films what become is the what is sort of like the IP. How do we explain? Or what is the explanation between using existing IP that is, you know, heavily uh, gatekept by corporate overlords? Is yeah, it I, I don't know. Like, how, how does She-Hulk exist on YouTube? I mean, that's clearly a DMCA filing away from not existing at all. You know, I'm Do pretty you... sure the answer is because it has like 200 views, you know. Right, if, okay. If, yeah. if anyone gave, you know, if it, if it got viral, it would be eradicated. So that's kind of the... It would, it would cost corporates in, money. Which is it would cost the corporations, one. yeah. It would cost the corporations money to sue him rather than them sure. trying to get anything oh, out of Yeah, yeah. but they don't yeah. have to sue him. All they have to do is say, hey, YouTube, uh, take this out. Yeah. yeah, it's true. I mean, the She-Hulk one literally has, uh, like, based on characters by, and he puts in the Marvel, the Marvel Cinema logo. That's a... Uh, ballsy i'll give them that um well, they, i, I yeah. think these th that kind of ties back to uh what you were saying jack about his his interest in like popular cinema while still working as kind of an outsider artist and he ultimately like he he wants to make a marvel movie like he wants he, an oscar he, yeah yeah he yes. sees <laughs> he sees all of his his films as just proof of concept that he can do these things and he he's hoping that someone, you know, at, at Marvel sees She-Hulk and goes, this is the guy we need for She-Hulk, you know, and, and, and that's this. He has proven his worth here in this film. And, and that's what who we're going to go with, because Gru is he's he's hyper focused on the constant creation of film. But the other aspect of independent filmmaking, the, you know, selling yourself and, and working with producers and finding distribution and marketing things that and working with a collaborative effort that is the key to yeah. independent filmmaking yeah, yeah and, and that, that doesn't <laughs> no that that doesn't seem to interest him as much as much but not at the same much. time not as much that is, well, well that's that's why i was saying that like I, I feel like he's the he's the kind of byproduct of autourism he genuinely believes himself to be a film factory and he's proven it by producing 200 Three minute long things on YouTube. I'm but not sure that the um, I'm not sure that like Joe D'Amato like I, I I think that he considered himself a uh, like carpenter, you know, as, as you know that type sure. of ideology. Sure. So which is which is the weird thing about Gru is that um, I I talked about like how he yeah he is sort of like this outsider or like has his own logic to filmmaking, but at the same time his aspirations are mainstream, which is just a weird thing and maybe is why uh he to me and it sounds like to us his films don't necessarily uh it's a little as much yeah it's a little awkward that we have someone who's kind of laboring on the kind of microcosm micro budgeted film but he's not like shane carruth like perfectly honing these extremely kind of accurate intri intricate unusual self-standing films like steve says i mean Gru is really working in the kind of the broadest base using normally already established ip his films you know his proof of concept trailers and even unexpected races feature-length films the storylines are not nuanced they don't have 
Like, I, I just, my, my struggle with it, frankly, is that he seems so interested in hitting the big beats in his films, the romance, the action, that he's forgotten to explain why, for example, a film about elves is particularly interesting to anyone. Um, and, you know, it's kind of what brings me back to the film constantly and kind of the head scratchingness is like, why elves? What are elves? And frankly, they're people with English accents. I think he just—he's just a nerd, to be quite honest. He likes elves. He likes Lord of the Rings. He—he he, a lot of his the stuff that he makes, like we said, they're shorts, but like they're recreations of uh, like he does Joker scenes. He does scenes from Yu Gi Oh, where he wears the ridiculous wig from that show. He—he's basically in like every shot. Yeah, in every like every shot in the documentary, he's wearing some kind of Marvel or Captain America T-shirt. So he's like, and if you compare him to somebody like Tommy Wiseau, and Tommy Wiseau has like a love for a lot of classic filmmakers like Hitchcock and Spielberg is who he references a lot. And I think Gru is just a nerd who wants to like his his touchstones are the the MCU and all all these films, and he wants like his own kind of fantasy franchise and. And, and yeah, it's like it's just he thinks that just by the sheer quantity of the output, output of work that he's done without any any sort of uh, regard for the quality of it, it is it entitles him to to, you know, to have his own franchise and be a, a part of this like filmmaking universe that he desperately wants to be. But he's it's just kind of sad that he's he's still a, like he's a 40 year old man with four kids and a wife and he's still chasing these dreams. Well, so yeah, what, I, I think that what separates him to me from what puts him in a unique space in this sort of cult filmmaker realm is that he is distinctly different from the likes of your Jim Wynorski's or your Joe D'Amato's who are who are cynical in a way, but they're cynical, at their heart formalists. They're trained formalist filmmakers. These guys yeah. are professionals. And yeah, and Gru is in no way a professional. He doesn't seem to be a student of film. A hobby. He doesn't seem to have any to call him a nerd. To me, seems charitable because he seems like a nerd the same way that some, uh, you know, frat guy who goes and watches Iron Man 3 is a nerd. You know, he's not like invested. He's not. Yeah, well, he seems like a consumer of the content who inexplicably then reproduces, really reproduces rather than produces. Everything is kind of a, a reformulation of something that's already been done. And at a certain point, it's gotten to, you know, it feels like it's gotten to the point where now he's literally just chasing keywords. And he's the, just trying to get noticed. The other thing that is interesting is he's, he's also separate from that other realm of filmmakers that, that you tend to focus on in the cult realm, like your John DeHarts, your Wiseos, your Neil Breens, who seem to have an amount of independent wealth. These seem like more people who are driven to create something they've got a story they want to tell uh but it's not their profession you know they're just kind of doing it on the side maybe they'll make a movie it'll take five years ten years this guy yeah he's not independently wealthy he's not doing anything except pumping out endless fucking six minute youtube clips it's insane to me yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is worth knowing that the insufferable Gru, which the documentary that kind of looks at the production of the remake of Unexpected Race. I mean, Frank, it's a Werner Herzog film. It's uh, it's kind of a Werner Herzog film because Werner Herzog films like normally presuppose that the madness is dr- the the drive of the madness has some kind of a capability behind it. But frankly, Gru's capability is seriously in question. As much as I think we're we're probably all somewhat positive on the original Unexpected Race as kind of a unusual 
amalgamation of kind of just strange energies combined in a film. Um, he He's sort of like, he's pushing up against, he's pursuing his dream endlessly, relentlessly, but the value of the dream and the realism of the dream is very questionable because he's entered into other social contracts. I mean, I'm I'm all for people following their dreams and doing what they want and saying, fuck society and, you know, kind of following off on things. But if you're going to do that, maybe don't get married. Or if you do get married, don't have four children. Um, because frankly, you know, I mean, as much as like, I'm, I don't like the capitalist structure, I think... You know, housing and food are, you know, if you need them to live, you shouldn't have, they shouldn't be part of a wage structure. They shouldn't be part of a supply and demand chain, but they are. So frankly, if you have mouths to feed, it's pretty awkward to get up every day and just go downstairs and get on your computer and start hacking up Iron Man 5 for, you know, uh, while your kids, while your wife has a job to go to, but also looks like she has to hustle the kids out the door to school. Um... I mean, frankly, it's it's a little upsetting, yeah, in a sense. Yeah, um, oh, yeah. and it's also yeah. really obtuse as to what what the dream is for for Gru, because this documentary centers on his kind of shot. You know, we've got an established filmmaker in Jared Hess taking an interest in this guy, setting him up with a producer, obviously getting him some inroads with the BYU's film department, some equipment that he does not normally have access to, some resources among. Uh, students and this is his shot and he says okay you know pick your project and sure this is not a high budget uh, production but it's certainly astronomically higher than what he's been afforded in the past this is his chance to make an impact and his idea is he he says oh this unexpected race this is the story I, I need to tell and the remake is I fucking identical to the original he doesn't change anything Nothing at all. It's not like, boy, I just didn't have the the it's ability. I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the funds to realize my vision. His vision is fucking the exact same thing that he made for five dollars or what the fuck ever fifteen the, the years grand, prior. Yeah, the the grand tragedy. I think. Uh, I mean, we can talk about this a little bit later, I guess, or kind of like as we send her off. But um, frankly, I I think the tragedy is that honestly his remake of the film is just a little bit more competent and it makes it less interesting. It's just like, like a machine on it. It's, it's not as good a film, frankly. Uh, I was less interested in the remake. 100% yeah. agree, but it didn't have any new ideas is, is the thing. Like he No, I mean, I like... As I keep bringing up, like, why elves? What do elves do? What is elf society? Why do the FBI want to track them down what's the vendetta he seems like he has the whole thing set up that it's like you know listen i'm not going to answer any of these questions but if you let me make unexpected race 2 maybe i'll answer some of your questions then but that's not really like i, I don't really i'm not going to buy that i'm not going to invest in that yeah and why uh, wasn't it, this why wasn't this the unexpected race 2 no yeah, one told I mean, him to remake is, the first movie he'd already <laughs> expressed a desire to make a sequel why didn't he just make that when given the separate yeah, Great, great question. I mean, it's it's just there's these gulfs of uh, kind of story levels and details that are yeah. He's never he hasn't filled them in in 
over a decade. No, he, it's the mm-hmm. same script. He didn't write a single new word for that that remake. Not a single well, fucking changed, new word. He changed a few things. Oh. The FBI wiped out the the elves in the 1970s in the remake rather than the 1960s. Instead of the 60s, yeah, yes. Yes, because he, he made the remake 10 years later. He felt he had to update that so that it's consistent, <laughs> his vision. This reminded me of, like, Jack, you keep coming back to this thing about why elves. It reminded me a lot of the, um, the Danzig film, Verotica, where it's just a, it's, well, it's just a bunch of ideas a director wants to see filmed without any sort of cohesion or thesis or why sure. why he even wants to like what what's the purpose? This uh, I've got this idea. I'm going to write it in a scene. Okay, great. Does it serve a greater purpose? No. Does it mean anything? No. Is it something the director thinks is cool and wants to see? Yes, yeah, sure. That's that's basically all I can find that Gru operates in the remake. It's it really is just even with the presence of Jack Black, it's still it's just a, a vacuum of creativity because it's just a nice fresh cone of paint on something that he already did to, I would say, an enjoyable extent 13 years prior. Yeah, I, th- I think it's fascinating. Uh, Jack Black is brought in. He, he manages through uh, Jared Hess to secure Jack Black, who's also a fan of his films, to come in. And there's a fascinating scene in the documentary where Jack Black basically gets back to them. At first, it looks like he won't be able to be in the film for scheduling reasons, but then he gets back and he's, he's able to get on. Um, and there's this fascinating phone call, which I thought was, it's, um, I mean, Jack Black comes off great in this documentary. He seems like a super nice guy, but he also comes across as really a consummate professional because in that phone call, um, it's like uh, Steve Drew has him on the call and he's really kind of throwing, it's like, I've got like three roles or whatever I could have for you, you know? And it's really, it just feels like it's like, I mean, obviously Steven just wants Jack Black on his film because anyone in his position would want Jack Black in the film because oh, he's sure. famous. It, it, you know, it's a no-brainer. So he's throwing roles at Jack Black. But what's really fascinating is to watch Jack Black working so quickly. Like, he has questions about each of the roles. He understands his present well like what it means for him to be in a film so like at first he's like he offers him xanthar which is actually a role Gru plays himself in the the remake which is uh like the a mentor elf to the main elf um and and you know jack black very quickly is like look i'm i'm you know i'm a big guy i'm heavy set i you know i don't think elves tend to look like that on film is that something you've considered steven clearly hasn't considered that <laughs> you know so he moves on uh, how about an fbi agent and jack black is like look <laughs> fbi agents like they they're pretty fit they stay in shape you know the fbi is a pretty you know clean cut unit it's very self-deprecating a, about it yeah you know <laughs> yeah it is but like he he like jack black is asking this question i think it's interesting cuz it feels like steven grew has not asked any of these questions right. or understood those kind Maybe, of like, ideas in that in that scene. So, Steve, did he get in touch with you via Facebook Messenger? Uh, initially, the the first time that we that we did a, a Gru episode for Caustic Content, he he reached out to me directly on Facebook Messenger okay. and said that he wanted to talk about his process. Uh, the second time when I interviewed him for uh, this episode, which by the way, there's going to be a Steve and Gru interview at the end of this episode. Um, yeah, I, I reached out to him. That makes uh, a lot of sense because <clears throat> in the scene, in the shot where he's talking to Jack Black on the phone, uh, if you look to his right, screen left, um, his monitor is on, his computer monitor is on, and there's like two Facebook Messenger chats <laughs> open. Uh <laughs> And I'm just where the magic happens Yeah, like hearing that that's how he got in touch. Like, uh, it just made me wonder. I mean, it's 
pure speculation. I could be dead wrong, but it just made me wonder if he's um, just kind of talking about his work with other people, uh, seeking them out like that, or if that's just sort of mm-hmm. his mode of, you know, main communication. Yeah, I, I think like my biggest takeaway from the remake, at least, was you know it it leans into these tendencies of Stephen Grew's wants and desires for his career trajectory. But the remake, ultimately, the final product, it it moves away from what makes a Stephen Grew film magical. You know what what makes the original Unexpected Race so compelling, and that's the weird in between spaces that Stephen Grew does not seem as interested in. So all of the you know the the lo-fi early digital of the early 2000s and just you know people these elf people just walking through fields and we hear their internal monologue and i, I think you know we were joking earlier it's kind of like terrence malick no it's seriously it's kind of this like bizarro world terrence malick and that's the compelling stuff or just these you know throw away move the scene to the next scene conversations between two characters where they're discussing something and you're like wait what what did he just say? What was what was that? Like these are the little moments that make a Stephen Grew film special and by putting a sheen over that, you you kind of you you move away from from the magic. It's not it, it it's not really there as much. And yeah, I I agree with that entirely. I I think it's yeah. like uh there is a disconnect with with the remake where it's he he didn't fight his impulses at all, which is another thing. <laughs> This is a movie that that does grant one anxiety. The documentary I'm talking is that again when you're treating this as as you should because it is your one shot really. This is your shot to make uh, independent film that could get any amount of traction. And he not only did he not really rework the script, maybe come up with a few original ideas. He was so married to this particular idea. But beyond that, he's married to his process so thoroughly. And if this is your one opportunity, why do you need to to run through 19-hour days and and jam in as many shots as you can within an hour? Like, I I understand you're making things guerrilla. You're not paying for permits. But so what? Take another fucking month and do it. Like the, take you're, another one. You're, where, where you're are firing the away your only shot you're going to get at this because you, you can't break out of your own ways. And the disconnect is he has better equipment. He has a real cinematographer. And, but he, he doesn't let him shut, uh, set anything yeah, up correctly. He doesn't correctly. leverage you know, this thing is shot on anamorphic widescreen, but it's not framed correctly. Half the, half the heads are chopped off in frame. <laughs> like it, it's like the cinematographer tried, but how... You can't even set up the shots properly at the speed he insists on moving for seemingly no reason. I, I, I do like, like you talk about how sometimes he doesn't uh, allow himself the time to do the, I, I think that um, some of the more most tense moments or maybe the only tense moments in the documentary were when he was kind of like looking over his shoulder <clears throat> uh, for people to, to break up his filming um and it which happens twice at the the christian girls camp and then uh at another place uh at a house but um uh it's which has to be defeating like if you're working out for free on these sets and then you have to like just kind of stop and go somewhere else or whatever but uh i i i that reminds me of 
making movies when I was like 17, you know, and kind of going to places where you weren't really like supposed to be, um, not necessarily like permit wise, but just, you know, sneaking into buildings and stuff like that, which is fun. But, uh, you kind of, you know, most people graduate that unless you're like Werner Herzog, uh, you know, who kind of teaches this guerrilla filmmaking and, um, but does it for a living, uh, which, which grew does not. Um, and that's kind of still the weirdest thing for me. And yeah, like it's like baked into a uh, capitalist framework to to be like, you got to grow up, dude. Um, I mean, it's cool that he's has so much passion about it, but uh, it's still like hard to get past uh, how hard it must be for his family. <laughs> the kid I'm, is I like, mean, the kid goes, I hope we get a thousand dollars and it's like yeah no oh. it's it's repeated in the documentary his his children who are not that old I mean I don't know how the old the oldest one is not much more than 10 or 11 I'm guessing uh they are they seem very aware that the yeah. family doesn't have a lot of money which is not a great sign I mean kids of that age don't really understand money normally they shouldn't you know not that much um well the kid was like right in the, was right in the frame the door frame like when he's when when the cinematographer attempts to quit uh or decides to at first and he talks about losing the house and which is just um which is a shit heel move it, frankly. Yeah, it really is but the kid's right there and it's yeah it's 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 uncomfortable to watch it is yeah no it's it's worth noting that i and i kind of bring it back to this kind of like to to my mind grew is kind of like he's the um kind of like the worst case scenario of an auteur run wild. And it's kind of this mythos that's been built that, you know, like the exacting demanding director who, you know, rules with an iron fist to create his art. And it's something that's kind of been fought back against now. And I think, you know, rightly so, because it's mostly bullshit. It's mostly not true. Um, And I think David Lynch, for example, is a director who has gone on record multiple times talking about how if actors and, you know, if the people you're working with aren't happy and secure, they're not going to do their best work. Like, real fear is not going to translate necessarily as real fear on film. And, like, playing mental mind games or just being abusive or, you know, just generally disregarding. Firstly, I mean, if you have talent on set, leverage it. Use it. Gru doesn't seem to do that. He, he is... He has a, a director of photography in this film for the remake, and he it seems pretty clear he shuts her out to the most part. He doesn't, you know, let her do anything. She's just there. She's a camera operator, fundamentally. And, um, you know, and it, it just becomes, he, he seems like he has internalized a lot of, like, the Hitchcock, Kubrick kind of ethos of, like, a guy who is king shit on set and everyone does what he's supposed to, you know, what he says to do and everyone understands it's everything is about him um, and everything is about him until someone else has a demand and then suddenly it's about his how, you know, everything's about him and his film. But then if someone questions anything, even within the film, he starts bringing up about his home and his like his basement flooded. He needs an insurance claim. Suddenly it's not about the film anymore. It's about his personal life. But I have a feeling if anyone else brought up their personal life, they'd be told, you know, are you serious? Like, this is my film. You know, he, he is the kind of the quintessence of an entitled director. And it's, it's an ugly look, frankly. Hey, Jack, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Everything is worth it. Oh, yeah. It's, it is just, it's a struggle because you can talk about, well, I admire his passion, but do I? 
he doesn't utilize that passion <laughs> to to improve in any way. He doesn't. What is? How does his passion manifest? The guy doesn't spend his days writing new material. In all of these years, you could say he has over two hundred credits, but he doesn't. He's he's got by my count six feature films. Uh Again, yeah, he's the not documentary a man who's, who's does not constantly make that clear. working and working and working to get better and better and try and make it in this industry. He's a man who thinks he deserves. He deserves recognition. Why? Yeah, Jason mentioned entitled, yeah. and I think that's after. Like he wants to, st- he wants to break into cinema, but he wants to break into cinema at the top. And <laughs> on his, like he's he's the Boondock Saints guy but without the break of a lifetime that that guy got, and he still fucked it up. Um, you know, he's not going to get that break, you know, to kind of make his own movie. He, he really wants to. And, you know, frankly, like, yeah, Adam, you're right. I mean, it, it, I you know, I watched a smattering of his work across YouTube. And, I mean, we're, I think we're mostly of a consensus his first, it, the earlier Unexpected Race is actually better than the remake. Uh, but there's really no distinction between his earlier and later stuff. Like, there's there's not really a... You know, we can't look to it and say he obviously learned a lot and he applied it and the later stuff is better. It's really, it's all just kind of shot. Like, it's just, he he believes completely in the value of effectively exposition and action. That's all his films are. It's either people telling you what they need to know or it's people punching each other or kissing. That's fundamentally his film. Um, there's no, yeah, the technique is, is like, there's no subtlety, there's no nuance, there's no kind of, uh, at one point in the documentary, he mentions how, you know, the forests are filming is beautiful and points to, you know, kind of, and we've got a stream here and, you know, I think the direct photography points out, you know, kind of like, yeah, the stream is really nice. And he kind of goes, yeah, symbolism and mm-hmm. moves on, but it's, it's kind of like, what was symbolism? <laughs> like a river is not symbolic right, right. in and of itself. It has to, you have to, you have to. Uh, could like create a language of symbolism in a film and you can lean on established tropes but well yeah it's, it, but it's kind of like you know there's a mirror in this shot that means something and it's like mm-hmm. you have to know what it means as the director uh yeah it's it's a very unfortunate setup that he is he seems so compelled to make or to produce but not to learn or listen which is funny because he produces training material also not sure what he's influenced by besides like you know the the um properties that he wears on his being famous well i mean he's in yeah he seriously reads like the sort of guy who's seen maybe 40 movies in his life you know like, <laughs> oh, like this is a guy you could quote Lord of the Rings back to you. I'm, I'm quite certain. Sure, because he's one seen point that. He's seen that 35 times, but he's never, yeah, he's never seen one anything point, else beyond. It. There's one point. There's one point in the documentary where his mother, who has starred in several of his films, and honestly, more power to her. She looks like she's having a great time. So, oh yeah, she's really go enjoy for it. Go for it. But she points out how. When he was very young, he like he made he completed like a 650 piece puzzle. 95. You know. 695 was that the, the number <laughs> so he he completed this this puzzle uh when he was when he was you know younger than you would expect to be able to do that and it's kind of like this gifted children gifted child point you know that she's trying to make that she's you know trying to support this kind of kid who's looking to you know kind of establish who clearly has an intelligence that he's trying to formulate into filmmaking but it just it 
it just does it's not there i mean he's bullied they talk about how he's bullied as a kid and withdrew into fantasy and i think that's probably very true but it's sort of like at a certain point his creations are frankly they're what school children come up with like what he's doing is what his kids should be doing kind of like (laughs) just going out into a car park and going like i'm iron man and jumping around the place um he's got some special effects he has some basic know-how of like green screens and production design to do that but like frankly I feel confident, and I've never really worked on a film, I feel confident that I could probably produce an equivalent to a Stephen Grew film over the course of a week if I felt like it. Yeah, with a budget of, of get, zero dollars. Zero Yeah, with, with nothing. Because yeah. I would just, show, I'd just rent a costume or buy a Halloween costume and just show up and say, I'm Batman, and have someone else pretend to be a villain and punch them and hey presto I have I am a, a director <laughs> I have produced but would you have as much fun d- I'm not even sure there's fun <laughs> there and that's really what's draws sure kind of like maybe it's a power thing maybe maybe oh, it is it is he comes across as a tremendous bully in this in this documentary well, right. yes. I mean the filmmaking itself seems like to be an inconvenience to him like he just really wants to power <laughs> through it to have the product he's it's just that fussy filmmaking gets in the way like when he presents his script to Jared Hess he's like here it is it's uh, it's 93 pages I plan to get through 70% of this in three days and they're like what <laughs> like if anything this guy should be aiming for working in music videos or advertising sure, sure. I, I, like yeah. that's what he's uh, building we saw his, his recreation but, of that NSYNC video I, I, I oh think my God. Jake Jake what you're talking about is uh, and we see it a couple times you know at the end where he goes oh, I just want to be done with the film already I mean maybe I'm sure there is a level of stress involved there but uh, it also I wouldn't be surprised I mean it's easy to play like armchair psychologist or whatever like just watching the documentary of him but um it's it could also just be like one of those things where you know that's sort of the mode that he uh thrives in um is being you know this busy and stressed out person on something where he's you know uh not only working hard but elevated to be in charge and you know when you don't you know when you are a bully and when you uh kind of go into fantasy your whole life and you don't have a lot of you know financial success um maybe that's an out for him to be able to have power which is unfortunate because it's on the backs of people that are not yeah that's like if you have if you have been taken advantage of in your life it it behooves you to not pay that forward, you know that's the thing. When when you're put in a position yeah. of power, you can't just stomp on everyone around you like some tyrant. It, it's it, it's a bad right. look, man. Uh, and again, I I sound it's, terribly hard on the guy, and he has made some things I enjoy. I think Challenge of Faith is even more enjoyable than Unexpected Race. I, I think he's a sure a fun filmmaker. He could he has the potential to be a, a cult figure if he could possibly get out of his own way and embrace that, which. I think mm-hmm. he's just too egotistic and fragile to do so, but uh, I hope he does. More power to him. I, I hope the best for his family yeah. and everything. But you gotta, well, you gotta embrace the people who are helping you and not treat people like trash. Right. I was just, I was just gonna say. I will say like that. The, there's one point in the documentary on the making of the Unexpected Race sequel where they're out in a forest. They're filming the kind of 
big elf scenes, like the, the elf group scenes where he's got a lot of extras and they're doing festival and whatnot. And he finds out the forest rangers have been called. He's not supposed to be there with permits. They don't know what he's doing. You know, unfortunate reality of guerrilla filmmaking. But there's a sequence there where he kind of realizes, okay, time's running out. He's maybe got a half hour before they show up and they shut the production down. And he goes into genuinely director mode and he kind of shoots like three shots like instantaneously because and he knows the script well enough that he knows that's what he needs those are the things he couldn't stage anywhere else so he kind of like you know okay in this one you all pretend to be dancing and laughing you know um and and like the next one's like you're eating and there's there's the guy the preacher telling the story of the elves or whatever and he like he goes in he, he actually takes charge it's the only sequence in the documentary where he really looks in his element as what he is presenting himself to be. And it's kind of notable that they only, f apparently only found one instance of that in the film. So, yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's difficult because, you know, we have, there's Stephen Grew, the man, there's Stephen Grew, the character in the documentary, and then there are the films of Stephen Grew. And we have to sort of like construct who he is and what he's trying to say from these things. And, my biggest takeaway is he's he's just incapable of of getting out of his own way sometimes and and letting go of his method you know because he is he's very dead set on and i don't even know part of it might be ego but also it's just he's driven by a desire to prove himself just in the broadest sense not to anyone specifically but just to prove that he can do it and by sort of powering through these movies and just go, 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 he's able to say, look, I did it. It's done. And yeah, I think, I yeah, think there's it's, a fear of failure. I think there's a fear of failure element to this, which I can relate to, frankly. It's an extremely relatable thing that um, I think he jumps through projects very quickly and kind of stacks the deck against himself a little bit because then if it isn't good, he can say, look, I had nothing to work with. It was just me. It was, you know, unskilled actors. We didn't have props. We didn't have money. We didn't have time. Whereas, frankly, I mean, we pointed out, I mean, the family are living on one wage anyway. He's working on his movies all the time. Why not work on one thing and actually craft it? And, you know, Jake, I think Jake is right in saying that, like, it looks like, he, you know, the actual filming seems like an inconvenience. And I think that's because the filming is when it becomes perhaps evident to him that that's kind of that's the rigmarole of it uh you know he's he's kind of like he he does it he's not living a real film making experience because there's no budget he doesn't have pas or anything like that uh you know it's it's just sort of it's just long days just to get shit in the bag just to get it done and it, it's kind of this feeling that i i just wonder you know if he had actually worked on a script and finessed it and made it good and detailed and interesting and then he managed to shoot that and if that wasn't good, would that break his heart? Would that be, would that be the breaking point? Whereas if it's if it's not that developed and then it gets made, that's okay because the next one he's still working, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm just wondering if there isn't a certain degree of self deception in that, which I think we're all guilty of. Oh, absolutely. But it just feels like you know, it just feels like just like work on one thing, put it down, get, you know, get it all into one script. Sure. Uh, yeah. But and we'll I see. certainly, I mean. You know, it, it's hard too because I I couldn't 
do I don't think any of us could do what he's doing. Like we all have day jobs. We don't just podcast for a living, you know? So imagine if we all decided tomorrow, okay, we're all just going to quit our jobs, zero income. All we do is podcast. Like that's <laughs> a, a massive undertaking that I would like just the immense pressure of that. I, I couldn't, I could not fathom being in that world. Like that's just crazy to me. And because of his method and the way that he does things, it's like, and his lack of independent wealth, which is, we touched on, but that's huge. So someone like, like Neil Breen, it, it, his movies work for a cult audience because one, he was in like real estate or something, I think, but he is architecture. very yeah. architecture. There you go. He's very independently wealthy. He has a lot of money. So he's able to follow this passion of his. And also the way that he does movies He's able to like limit the number of actual sets that he has, and most of them are just interiors, places where he doesn't have to worry about permits and things like that, and then he green screens the fuck out of everything else. Or someone like Tommy Wiseau, who God only knows where he got his money from, there's a ton of rumors on that, but he was able to shoot at like just an insane budget, and I think it's safe to say that Tommy Wiseau, say what you will about Stephen Grew as a filmmaker, but Tommy Wiseau does not have the film vocabulary that, that even like a Stephen Grew has. So, but Tommy Wiseau was able to create something that it resonated with all these cult audiences. But the thing is, if you don't have money and your, your drive and your aesthetic does not do you any favors in creating something that's going to reach a wider audience, you just kind of get stuck in this loop, you know? Sure. Yeah. One of the things I, I noticed is that one of the early scenes in the documentary is him meeting with the producer and he, he asked for a million dollar budget for this film. And, you know, going through the process and, and seeing the final result of, of what the remake looks like, I started to just wonder to myself, what if the producer said, sure, here's a million dollars? What would be what would have changed? <laughs> like, what would be different in the film? He doesn't seem to have any idea how to utilize that sort of money, you know, like what it seems like he would just do the exact same damn thing over and over again. I'd hope he'd buy nicer wigs for everyone. Yeah. yeah but that's yeah. I mean, fun instead of it, I don't know. It does seem like he's, he's fully invested in, but I mean, he feels extremely literal. And I think there's, there's maybe a problem in that and that, you know, when you film things, there's kind of like an alchemical kind of magic in a representational shift that what you film is not, what will be played back so you have to adjust what you film accordingly and that's that's filmmaking fundamentally is understanding that and he is very invested in the literal levels of film of talking of characters saying this is my name i am an elf i am in love with you that's you know and and this is kind of his film and yeah with a million dollars that doesn't address that because the script is already he's already written the script and he's married to it so I don't know, other than throwing in a, just a shit ton of VFX yeah. projects. Well, I, I mean, I he know. doesn't really use green screen in any of his work either, so it's hard to say. I don't know. Maybe yeah. he'd just pay for permits, but probably not. <laughs> <laughs> pay the actors. No, probably not. Union shoot? I don't... See, that was that's the other thing I, I think we, we ought to say, is that we are, as previously mentioned, you know, piecing together a lot about this, making a lot of assumptions drawing a lot of conclusions and it's only fair to grew that even though i think that the documentary treats him 
with quite a bit of pathos and respect. I think that Hess has a an absolute genuine fondness for Gru, and mm-hmm. I think that Scott Christopherson does not portray him as some sort of villainous figure, even though he kind of Gru gives him enough rope to to, to have done that with the film. But I don't I don't feel like that's okay. the direction the film goes. But to be as fair as possible, you know, Gru himself despises this film. He would not even discuss it in the interview. So he feels as oh, if really? it's an unfair portrayal of, of him and his family and take huh. that into account. Yeah. Interesting. There's definitely parts of it that are uncomfortable, um, which I, you know, and again, it makes me wonder, and yeah, we're all playing armchair psychologists on this, that, you know, when you, when you look in the mirror, when you know, if you don't like what you see, uh, <laughs> seeing, seeing someone else build the mirror for you might seem very, very troubling. And I, I don't know. We we are really working off the insufferable Gru. Uh, yeah. So 100%, uh, we are, you know, we're working within the limited framework of what that film provides. But there are certainly sequences in that that are seem very telling. Seem mm-hmm. very, yeah. I mean, he fires uh- someone over a phone call, which is not a way to make a movie, frankly. Well, I, I, w- I would agree that, you know, from an outsider perspective, I think the documentary is, is pretty fair. And, you know, to Christofferson's credit, you could easily turn this into some, you know, like extended Tiger King nonsense piece where it just it just plays off these people's worst tendencies and turns them into like walking memes. And then, you you know, you cash your big check and that's it. And I, yeah, I, I really don't think the documentary does that. It's pretty it seems pretty level headed about approaching its subject matter. Um you know, Sean, there's there's one thing that I do want to talk to you about specifically because you, so, you found out a little a little nugget here. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So let's go from armchair psychologist to uh, armchair conspiracy theorists. Uh, we're going <laughs> we're going straight film QAnon right now. Okay. Uh, you discovered a I think it's a review. It looks like it's from Letterboxd. It's and yeah. It's it's from um, somebody I follow online, and that's her review of the insufferable group, but uh, go on. Okay, so I, I'm going to read wanna, this. I don't want to, like, name them in case, you know. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. So it's just it's just someone. Uh, but they wrote, kind of weird that there's this low-key Mormon movie about a teen moving in with her strange plaid-wearing dad and falling in love with an ancient fairy tale being who's being chased and persecuted by outside forces who resent him for being different and are threatened by his superior intelligence and morals in the woods. Then, two years later, Stephanie Meyer has a dream and writes Twilight. Meyer graduated from BYU in 1997, three years before Stephen grew, which means they were at BYU together for a year and probably had overlapping classes as they studied in similar fields. Hmm. Think about it. On top of that, I will point out that one of Stephen Grew's earliest films is... New Breed, a vampire film. So the question I pose to you, gentlemen, did Stephanie <laughs> like Meyer rip mode. off Stephen Grew? Follow-up question, is Stephen Grew a better writer than Stephanie Meyer, and why is the answer yes? <laughs> uh, that seems fair. Well, you set the bar, you set the bar pretty low uh, on the comparison. So, I mean... I, I don't know, um, man. What would what would Steve Grew do if he could find like a Robert Patterson and a Kristen Stewart kind of 
starting point. Uh, he wouldn't listen to them, I feel, <laughs> would be the problem. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like Gru just needs to... I don't, I, I don't maybe think there's, there's really an overlap the here. But maybe there's yeah. just something in the air at BYU. Yeah, May, some, maybe some magic. Uh, Mormon Jesus, I, whatever that is. You know, it's it's a shame, too, because I, I don't think that Utah necessarily has the, the tax breaks associated with, you know, California or Georgia or any other number of states. And it, it kind of goes back to just thinking about growing and contextualizing his work when you compare it to 60s and 70s and on into the 80s Italian cinema and what those directors did. But damn, it must have been nice to just have giant tax breaks and loopholes where you could make whatever the fuck you wanted. Or, you know, uh, oh, Jesus, what's his name? Um, the guy who made all the video game movies that suck ass. Why am I blanking right now? Uwe Ball. Ball. Uwe Ball, yeah. I mean, here's a guy who was able to... Uwe Ball is a complete asshole, and not a lot of talent, but he was able to just basically buy himself a film career through the power of tax breaks. And so much of this just comes back to, yeah, what what does Stephen Grew do if he is in an alternate universe where he's living in California and he's independently wealthy? And I think we'd see something very different. I don't know if it would be better. I don't know if it would be any more unique. I don't know if we'd have the, the magic that we see in movies like uh, Challenge of Faith or... or uh, the unexpected race, but it would certainly be something different. I don't know. Agree to disagree. I feel like it would be exactly the fucking same. <laughs> or it could just be the same. Yeah, that's entirely, that's that's it. That's just it. He'd use all his independent wealth and just argue with Disney to sell him the rights to things and they'd refuse. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's not going to get to remake Song of the South because I heard they're they're changing up <laughs> Splash Mountain. So that's that's off the table. But anything else, who knows? All right. Well, you know, before we close out the uh, wonderful episode 100, I do want to remind you guys that at the end of this episode, we actually do have an interview with Stephen Grew. We're going to drop that in at the end here. And uh, I don't know if we're going to edit it for time. Uh, if we do that, we'll certainly release the full interview as a, uh, a bonus episode for you guys. So you'll get the full Grew experience. Now, I know I said I was phasing out putovers, but this is episode 100. So... In the spirit of making Sean Glynis happy, and also mm -hmm. because, you know, we did putovers for so long. Sean, what are you putting over this week? Oh, boy. You know what I will put over um, is, because I, uh, I, I hope that it's of interest, uh, if not to our listeners, at least you guys. Um, Troy Hark's debut film, The Butterfly Murders, uh, which is 1979 uh movie that is um it's it, it's about murdering butterflies but uh it, it oh is it now <laughs> the fact that like what what happened or not what happens but what it's about is not really uh how all that happens is not really uh what's important um but uh it, it was uh the second i think uh joy hark movie i had seen after double team so kind of like the first like canon uh you know Hong Kong thing that he's done, and um, it's uh, it's just really cool. You're just kind of like watching cool images the whole time and not really caring like about what is what is happening or why it's happening. Um, it's, it's it's really fun. So, the butterfly murders. I, I highly recommend it. Sounds good, Jack. What are you putting over this week? Uh, I'm gonna put over a film that 
as far as I'm aware right now, it's available through several cinemas and they're all shut down thanks to COVID, but you can rent it digitally through them. Uh, it's called The Killing Floor. It's uh, directed by Bill Duke, a.k.a. the burly guy two. from Predator and Sister Act 2 and Commando and several other classics. But uh, he directed this. It's a really interesting film. It was originally was made for PBS. It's a TV film made in 1984. Um, based on real events, kind of charting the development of the Chicago labor movement through the slaughterhouses and the stockyards in Chicago um, and how race was used to uh, how basically the wealthy use race to play off people against each other to try and stymie the labor movement um it's a li- it's it's a tv movie it feels a lot like a tv movie and that there's like kind of a very kind of didactic voiceover and stuff and obviously budget limitations um although that being said apparently stu- uh, labor unions throughout chicago and uh, the the end credits of this film are just like the whole thing was financed practically by labor donations <laughs> uh reportedly labor unions worked half price uh, half price rate to make the sets and work on the film because I felt it was wow. so important to make the film and it's it is a fascinating film kind of looking at it it's building up to the 1919 race riots that happened in Chicago um but kind of it, of certainly a movie of our time in that frankly nothing much has changed from 1919 to 1984 when it was made to 2020 now uh, kind of a fascinating uh, film about just kind of organized labor and certainly I think for anyone who's interested in something like say Paul Schrader's Blue Collar this is uh, very much in the same same kind of line kind of uh, uh, expose of how class and race are used as divisive tools in America to make sure that the rich stay rich and the, the poor stay poor so well well worth a look if you have a chance yeah uh, I I would second that recommendation and also this is a movie that for the longest time was a real pain in the ass to find a, a quality version of it so yeah if you get a chance i know a lot of uh movie theaters are doing like digital rentals and stuff so look it up see if you can rent yeah, it from your local theater it's a new 4k yeah, yeah restoration so like it looks great uh so hopefully yeah come to blu-ray eventually too cool uh jake what are you putting over this week yeah, so we mentioned his name earlier, and I've been sort of going through a lot of his films, um, and this happened to be the most recent film I've seen, but uh, I think it's an important film Steven to watch. Uh, no, not quite. Uh, it's an important film uh, in that the context of, uh, you know, as we're, as the human race is sort of hurtling towards uh, impending doom. Um, I'm going to put over Abel Ferrara's uh, 444, The Last Day on Earth. Um, it's uh, set almost entirely in this uh, Manhattan apartment. With uh, Willem Dafoe and Abel Ferrara's wife, whose name escapes me at the moment. And uh, basically the ozone layer has just been obliterated to a point where scientists now have an exact time of day where the world will end. And um, it's basically just this couple uh, counting down the last minutes of their life. Um, mostly they just engage in, in sex and they eat takeaway delivery food and they make Skype calls. Um, but I, I don't know. I found it to be kind of a very, very beautiful, very strange and, and bizarre, but touching film. And, um, yeah, there's one scene in particular where they order takeout and the, um, the Vietnamese delivery guy, uh, comes in and they let him use the, the Skype so that he can call his family back home and basically say his goodbyes. But, um, yeah, 444 last day on earth. I recommend it. Cool. Uh, Myros, what are you putting over this week? 
You know, when uh, when our esteemed host phases out a segment, one tends not to prepare for it. But uh, that's right. You know, Keep you on I your toes, buddy. Just just watch Challenge of Faith by Gru. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this time and put over a couple of our own projects because we have made some significant changes upon uh, the time you hear this. Uh, so we are launching a Patreon and uh, appreciate any support from listeners there. And you'll see some changes in our feed. The podcast we were talking about earlier. If you were interested in this sort of conversation about these uh, derelict directors, uh, check out the podcast Steve and I are doing with uh, Stephen Coleman going forward, Caustic Content, which will no longer be on this feed. It'll be its own thing. So, you know, subscribe to that. Give it a listen. Uh, that's all. That's good, man. A little self-promotion. I like it. I like a good self-putover. Uh, <laughs> Jake... Before I give you the last word, uh, I got I got to do my put over for this week, and it mine's incredibly stupid. So I watched Space Jam the other day for the first time since I don't know I was probably ten years old. I got to say, Space Jam worth another watch if you haven't seen it since you were a kid. <laughs> and the only reason I say that is because it is absolutely wild to me that this movie was produced like still at the peak of Michael Jordan mania. And Michael Jordan's power is like a sports and cultural figure. And the entire first half is just taking the piss out of him for playing baseball. And there's this whole scene where he's he's actually at a game playing baseball. And the catcher from the other team is telling him the pitches and whether or not he should swing. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, man, I'm a really big fan. And, you know, I just want to help you out. And it's it's hilarious. And it's it's weird with its little transgressive moments. And it's the kind of movie where you're like, damn, I don't know how the fuck this got made, but I'm glad that it did. So, uh, you know, if you got to spend some time around some children or you're just looking for some weird nostalgia or you got 80 minutes to kill, Space Jam, not a bad way to do it. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to remind you guys that you can head over to the link that is in the description of this very podcast. That'll take you to our iTunes page. Please rate and review this podcast. Give us a five-star review and make sure you do a written review. You can write anything that you want. Just write it and give us five stars. Uh, when you do that, it gives us more visibility with the iTunes algorithm. And uh, the better visibility we have, the more people that can listen. And uh, the more people that listen, well, the more content we can produce for you. And that's, that's a good thing all around. So please do that. Also, as Myros mentioned, please check out our Patreon page. Even if you can only donate a couple bucks, that would be awesome. Every little bit helps. Uh, let's get these boys some new microphones. Please, please help Sean Glennis get a new microphone. It's, it's what he needs. Um, other than that, uh, if you're listening to this podcast anywhere else, whether it's Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever, just please give us a written review, rate the podcast. Uh, make sure you check out the new website that just launched. It's all good stuff. We're doing it for you. We're men of the people. And Jake, last word's yours. If you say I'm interesting, you're fired. <laughs> That's a damn fine last word. Hey, this is Steve from Optimism Vaccine, and I am here today with Stephen Grew, arguably the most prolific independent filmmaker in America. Uh, Stephen, how you doing, man? Doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Thank you again for, uh, you know, giving us a few minutes of your time. Uh, you know, I, I called you the most prolific 
independent American filmmaker, which might seem like hyperbole to some people who aren't familiar with your work. But correct me if I'm wrong, you've made over 200 films in about 20 years. Is that right? Um, I'm up to 261 now. Holy shit. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that, that is an impressive number, man. That is very impressive. And obviously, we're we're dealing with a, a global pandemic right now. Has that disrupted your your working process? Are you are you still making stuff, or what's going on with that? So the pandemic shut down Hollywood, which means that you know a lot of people don't want to make music videos and stuff. So that part of Wolf Productions has been you know shut down until people want to invest in having something done. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I've never stopped making movies. I'm actually in the process of making three things right now um, and wanting to write a fourth um, because my family and I, we ended up getting a 3D printer several months ago, and that goes very well with my armor making. Oh, yeah. And so we, because I'm also a cosplayer while being a filmmaker, which comes in handy because uh, we can use some of those stuff for, you know, whatever we want to make. And I'm on a Star Wars kick right now. And um, May 4th, I finally got um, my favorite outfit I've been waiting like 30 years to get, and it was Bubba Fett. Okay. And so for May the 4th Be With You, we came out with a little, you know, dance number and stuff like that because we went to Goblin mm -hmm. Valley, and so I want to get some kind of cool things like that. But, you know, little things like that, at least to kind of, you know, um, say that I'm making stuff because um, I'm always experimenting, um, learning new mm -hmm. stuff or, you know, and so that's kind of where I'm at right now. Uh, but big stuff, um, I've technically Unexpected Race was my last big stuff because it was full-length feature and, you know, full cast and crew. I sure. really don't do that anymore. So, so I, funding. Since, I mean, since Unexpected Race, then you've gone back to just kind of uh, running the whole show, more or less, obviously directing, producing, uh, starring, and uh, just, just you and a camera guy, more or less? Well, because my son is also a Stephen Groove, <laughs> um, I've helped him develop pretty much everything I've learned over my whole entire career. So nice. um, I have him run the camera. He's done some uh, special effects. We uh, try to start a web-based series called The Deadpool Show, um, and also Darth Vader show. But in the Deadpool show, for the second episode, we want to make a spectacular introduction. And we wanted to, I wanted to kind of see if I could recreate the effects they did in the Deadpool 2 movie with his uh, 007 introduction. And we actually recreated most of it. And some of those effects, actually, my kid did with my coaching. So, I mean, things like that. I mean, I have that. I've always had my kids, you know, jump in my films, uh, especially with the, as I mentioned before, the Star Wars, I can have them jump into their little uh, Jawa costumes and, you know, <laughs> looks like little midgets running around, even though they're getting a little bit taller. But, but with that, you know, I, even with some of the little films I've been doing, um, you know, the nice thing about, as I said, with Star Wars, I can put on my outfits and you don't know it's me. Mm -hmm. um, but as for the other stuff, I did, make a couple of other shorts where I'm not the main lead mm -hmm. and I'm not always the main lead unless I need to be because I can't find people <laughs> sure, <laughs> it's hard sure. doing things where, you know, even on a, 
indie film thing, a lot of people are just, they're too busy to be able to just do it for experience. So Yeah, it's a big commitment. It's a really big commitment. A lot of people don't know that, you know, even, even for short films, the hours can be long and it's, it's a pretty big commitment. So, um, you know, one of the things I was going to ask you too, is I, I know on your YouTube channel, that's where you post a lot of your, you know, your Deadpool stuff. Uh, you did a, like a Joker series, uh, you've done Resident Evil, uh, have you have you ever ever excuse me have you ever gotten any pushback from any major studios or anything for using other people's intellectual property or have they been pretty cool with it so far? Well, I've never had a problem. Um, I know people have always wondered if I'm breaking copyrights. I'm not because they are parodies of those mm. things, and so by doing that direction, then I'm not having issues um as for music you know that's always for 17 years in my career i had problems with music because of funds and finding musicians that i never could produce my own music so i'd always mm -hmm. use the 10 track until something came through well something did come through later and that's why i remastered all my movies and then i could finally start selling them without having that issue so music wise i've never had a problem with as for like Batman and stuff, you know, all my Joker shows were film pitch trailers or little spoofs of given ideas of things, but that's not breaking copyrights, no different than a cosplayer. Cool. Cool. Does cool. that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. Uh, going back to Unexpected Race, I, I know that this is a movie that you originally made in 2003, right? And then you had the opportunity to remake it with a, a bigger budget and some Hollywood stars. I know you had uh, John Heater from Napoleon Dynamite. You had Jack Black, of course. Are there any other projects that you've made over the years where you say to yourself, man, if I had a million dollars, I would remake this in a heartbeat and I'd, I'd take another shot at it? No, that one was um, unique um, because the opportunity – was that people came to me saying that we want to do a special on you, but we want you to feel you're in your own creative pool. We want the magic of grew attitude. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to see what that was. And I knew that the direction that I needed to go, I had went through all of that heartache in 2003. I knew exactly what was wrong with the script. I knew exactly where it needed to be fixed. And, you know, we went with that. Mm -hmm. And I never knew um, during that process, I was going to even get Jack Black, uh, Jack Black and John Heater. No. And so we were actually halfway through filming before that came into play. And so, you know, other opportunities, you know, I don't think that I would take the money to make my stuff um, if I had big budget like that mm -hmm. because I want to be just the director. Even though everyone knows I'm a one-man band, I do that for many reasons. One, I can save money, but two, I keep my skills up because maybe I won't be able to get a directing gig. Maybe I can get an editing gig, you know, but yeah. if there's ever something big, I'd rather have someone else's script and then I go from that. Does that make yeah. sense? No, that makes perfect sense. Well, and, you know, a, a lot of people have, have compared your work to the output of, say, like a, a Neil Breen or something like that. But when I look at these other independent filmmakers that are creating outsider art, they really do seem hyper-focused on being 
you know, the director and the star and the producer. So it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, you'd, you'd be willing to, if somebody had a great script, you'd love to just direct it. Because, I, I, yeah, I think a lot of other independent filmmakers are really looking to just do their own stuff. So, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Well, I've always tried to teach it harder because going through school, they teach you how to make a movie, but they don't teach you how to sell it. They don't teach you to be a producer because mm-hmm. it's always about who you know to get that money backing. And so I went the complete independent route because I have stories that need to be made and ideas that I have. But the hope is, is that I would get someone's attention to say, you know what? I really liked your ideas in, let's say, Unexpected Race, and it's awesome mm-hmm. that you were able to work with these people. What would you do if, you know, we threw you a pile of money and you, you know, make a film? Because you don't need to make – how do I say this? You don't need a million dollars to make a movie. If sure. That makes, you know, it's just it's a matter of just making a movie. But when you start bringing people, well, if you don't have this actor, then you're not going to, you know, make a movie. It's like, well, it's not always just about the acting. It's just kind of everything. <laughs> Oh, for sure, for sure. um, But yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good point, and it's it's difficult, right? Because you're you're in Utah, you're not in California, or even a a state that has tax breaks for filmmakers, where they shoot a lot of stuff. Like you know, uh, Atlanta, Georgia is a great example of that. Uh, So you're kind of you're kind of swimming against the current in a lot of ways because. Utah isn't necessarily seen as as a hotbed for for you know making movies, so. That that marketing stuff is, is so important. I don't know if that's more of a news stat, but back in the day, it was. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if it's always about tax breaks. It's just a matter of, again, who you know. We're in a world now that technology has changed so much to where, you know, everyone wants high def. And back in the day, it wasn't high def. Mm-hmm. And so now that you make a cell phone, you can make movies now with your cell phones versus hiring a videographer to go go do a wedding. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? And yeah. so anybody can make a movie. It's the point of, again, you know, again, deep pockets to be able to do the marketing. I don't think it really matters where you live. Does that make sense? Yeah. And yeah. so it's, just, it's a matter of who you know. And so by the, the sake of filming in Utah, the big question is, what are you needing to film? If you can do a Western, then by all means, we have all the, the land, but if you're going to do a sci-fi thriller where it's going to blow up, no one cares about Salt Lake City. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's yeah. always going to be L.A. or New York or something big, you know. Sure. So, so, so now you got to write a western, right? You got to give us a western. I don't think you've, have you done a western yet? No, I've thought about it, but um, I've been avoiding it. <laughs> you thought of, yeah, that I mean, it's well, you, you need to understand. Uh, so if you if you step back, if you're kind of wanting my ideas of how you make a movie. You have to think of the genre first, and what are the hardest genres to do? Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. question. Yeah, that's see, and that's, the, and that's the first tough. one's going to be a sci-fi, second yeah. one's going to be a fantasy, and third is going to be a western because mm-hmm. you have to create that world that doesn't have what we see every day, mm-hmm. and that's why when I did Circle of Fire, it was a fantasy, and that was the most expensive film at that time because I had to create outfits. I had to get swords. I had to get, you know, forest backgrounds instead of, you know, CG cities because I just, I didn't have that resource back there. But a Western, you got to get the hats and hats are not cheap to make it look good on frame. And so one outfit for one character could be five to a thousand dollars just for one person. And now you need a whole cast. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, that's like the old, uh, the old Roger, I think it was Roger Corman who said, 
you know, if, if you want to make a cheap movie that makes a lot of money, stay away from kids and animals because they cost too much money and, you, you know, they're pain in the ass to work with. So, yeah, you have to be conscious of, the, you know, what's going into this and what you need to make it believable. And I think you're I think you're totally on point with that. And, and that goes back to why a lot of low budget independent filmmakers kind of lean on horror, too, because there's a lot of room to play there and you don't necessarily have to make it a fantasy horror film. And there's ways to, to create horror movies where you're not shelling out big money for, say, costumes or sets or things like that. That's correct. And you know nowadays, that? people oh, like a good horror. <laughs> they do. They do. I, uh, do you have a genre that you enjoy working with the yes. most? Because I, oh, I know I, 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 I'm known for action. Action's mm-hmm. my my forte. Dramas, yeah, they seem to pop out because sometimes they're easier. But I love action. You know, a good, entertaining action. You know, you mm-hmm. have a you know a, a decent plot, and then just explosions and guns and all that because that's <laughs> easy to do. You can get a squirt gun, paint it just right, and it looks like the real thing, you know, and just there you go. put some good sound effects. You can even make it look like it recoils. I mean, it's just, it's fun because it's just, usually most people like a good action, but mm-hmm. it just depends on the moods of everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm with you on that one because I think horror movies can rub people the wrong way a little bit, but if you have a nice over-the-top action movie, it's easier for a wider audience to kind of get on that level. So, yeah, I, I can see that. And who doesn't love explosions? I mean, I'm I'm a big fan myself, so. <laughs> well, that's why I did the Resident Evil um, series for a while. I mean, I did uh, kind of two and a half movies, and then I did a, a six-episode um, series, there's actually 12. I just have never been able to finish the last um, six episodes. But mm-hmm. every episode, there was always something really fun that came out of that to where, you know, it's not usually as stressful as something bigger because there's just there's less people. I, I really like a smaller cast and crew because mm-hmm. you can get a lot done and you don't have so many whiners, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it does. It does. So, okay, let's say... There's a guy, and he's going to give you a million dollars, and he wants a Stephen Grew movie. Okay, so you, you're writing it, you're directing it. What's your, what's your dream project? You can do anything. Snap your fingers, make whatever you want. What's that look like? Well, um, when I was going through school, there was a book called uh, Storm Riders, or, mm-hmm. or Storm Runner. And it was actually the third book of six books. And I actually got in touch with the author and stuff, and they were even willing to write a script. And it's literally the willow fantasy action adventure you could think of, but it's with wolves, and then you get a, a main star, but she had abilities to see through the wolves. Okay. And so they're, they're, they're wolf walkers is what they are. Mm-hmm. And they also have the ability to heal and just – the type of story it was is just the total good and bad. You have some warlord and then you have people trying to survive. And, you know, just something like that would be just awesome to put together. Oh, and that's always been actually my biggest dream is something like that. Or I did a film pitch trailer called The Crown, which was Night Elves. And, again, it's kind of like that fantasy um type story where, you know, you have a good versus evil um, plot line, but still just, you know, kind of getting back to humanity and just people and desperate times and how they're surviving. And then you have that hero, male or female, to help you through it. I like that. And I think where we're kind of at right now, I mean, 
we're kind of in that comic made to, you know, reality films going on, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's nice to kind of stretch it a different direction, but hopefully do it well. And a million, that's a start. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. Uh, Okay. So talking about your, your films broadly, uh, you've gained kind of a, like a minor cult status, among people who are interested in outsider art and independent cinema and things like that, do you care about how your films are enjoyed? Like when, when you see an audience react, as long as they're happy and they're having a good time, is that what you value the most? Or, you know, if, if they uh, applaud something or laugh at something that maybe you thought was, was more serious, does that rub you the wrong way? Or, yeah, basically, how, how, do you, how do you interact with your audiences and, and how do you want your movies to be received? Okay, so that's a big question. So I'll That's talk a big back. question. <laughs> so to go back, um, Steven Spielberg said something really awesome when he did Schindler's List. And he said that, um, I don't care if anyone sees this movie, at least I made a movie of my people. Mm-hmm. And I've always kind of taken that to where you know what, I don't care if people see my movies, but at least I made a movie. Mm-hmm. However, my objective is one person. If I can make one person feel entertained, they had a good time, I've done my job. We're in a world now that it doesn't matter how much money you throw it, you're not going to satisfy everybody. Yep. And one thing that's really hard is that because you have these $400 million movies, an indie filmmaker is never being treated anymore as an indie filmmaker of someone that's just making a film for entertainment mm-hmm. because they're comparing it to the big-budget films. All they look at them as they're low-budget filmmakers. And low-budget, that term is actually rubbing me the wrong way now mm-hmm. because it shouldn't matter what the budget is. The point is you're making a movie. You're making art. We are artists. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so nowadays it's like, you know, I've, I've, I've heard the trolls. I've heard it for 22 years of filmmaking. You're not going to satisfy everybody. But if there is a small group of people that are enjoying it, great. However, what is hard is that if you don't have enough of the fan base, it's going to be hard to produce more. 22 years, I've made 260 movies, some were music videos, some were, you know, copyright songs and stuff, but no one knows who I am because I'm just another one of those artists that are just, you know, making these films. And so, you know, that's the hard part is not having what you do need to make what you love. And so that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's just like, Hey, if I have a group of people, you know, I don't have millions of hits at all on on my, my YouTube because YouTube has the algorithm that I can't get the searches to where you put in star Wars and mine's the first one that comes up. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to literally put in Utah Wolf Productions or Stephen Grew movies to actually get, you know, something to come up of mine. But you know what? I get 100 people. I get a few people that comment and say, you know what? That was very entertaining. I've done my job as a filmmaker. But in the end, it's like, eh, I know where I'm at, but I still enjoyed making that move, movie. And so, you know, I have my kids. You know, we can look back and say, well, you know, if I die tomorrow, you have 22 years of what I did. And you can enjoy that. You know, you guys get lonely, want to see a drama, see this movie. You know, if you want to see something goofy because I was being an oddball, then here you go. I mean, it's just, 
it's kind of genealogy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I just make movies, and if you don't like it, that's fine. Some other person will. That's that's where I'm at with that. Hopefully, that answers that big, deep question. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was. Yeah, I'm, I'm throwing some uh, some heavy stuff at you, but I think you answered that succinctly. That was that was perfect. Uh, you know, the the last question that I have for you is. We have a lot of people that listen to the podcast, and some of them might be aspiring filmmakers. So do you have any advice that you would give to maybe someone who's in film school now or just about to enter film school? What what would you tell a young filmmaker right now? So there's two ways of I'm going to answer this. One, don't waste your time going to school. I know that sounds really different, but we're in a different time now. Don't waste your time. Grab a camera. Start making stuff. Get a job, even if it's a PA giving water to someone, or even if you can't get that job right now because things are different now. Just keep making films. So the second half of that is that no matter who you are, do not listen to the negatives. Don't put up the walls that you can't make a movie because of money. There's ways of getting around it. Check online. You can see... uh, I really like YouTube because it's just, it's a free way of seeing what someone else has done that might inspire you a different way. Mm -hmm. Like right now with my cosplay, I'm making a Gatling gun. I've been waiting forever to make a Gatling gun, but I don't have to spend $400 to make a Gatling gun. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there's, there's ways of learning what you need to any trade and film. There's plenty of stuff to help you. And if you have to start off with just your phone and some free editing thing online, go for it. At least you got to start somewhere and yeah. just do it. Just do, just it. do I, it. Don't listen to people telling you that you're not going to be able to do it. Just keep moving forward. And it's just, it, it's, it's an art form that's really fun to do. I like that. I like that. Well, thank you so much for giving me some of your time today, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Do you have anything that you want to plug or anything before I let you go here? Yeah, um, just if people uh, don't know who I am, you can go to Utah Wolf Productions. That's my channel on YouTube. Um, you can follow me on Instagram with uh, Utah underscore Wolf underscore Productions. Um, I do have a utahwolf.com um, website. And then lastly, if they want to go to Vimeo um, On Demand, put in my name, Stephen Grew, and there's a handful of films that uh, are usually hard to see. Um, that are available to rent or buy. And then, of course, lastly, you can go to Amazon Prime and put in my name. And good news for the people that want to see Unexpected Race for free, you can go to Tubi and put in Unexpected Race, and you'll see the poster that's up because it just fired up the other day. Nice. That's great, man. That's great to hear. All right. Well, thank you again, Stephen. And, uh, yeah, appreciate your time. And I uh, will talk to you again soon, all right? Okay.